Hi, this is Matt Parker, author of A Radical Enterprise, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising Podcast. Podcast. I'm your host once again, Jay Hersko. Joining me this week, I have my partner in crime, uh, uh, co-conspirator, if you will, Mr. Andy Clef. Andy, thanks for coming along. Oh, my pleasure. Good to see your face. And, uh, ditto. Ditto. Mm-hmm. These, uh, these experiences are too few and far between. I think I say that for both of us. Yeah. So what are we talking about this week, folks? So this week, Andy and I are going to do a, uh, an unscripted conversation around a book that we both read that we really think is going to resonate with our audience, but also we might be able to use this to solve some of what ails us. And it's the book by, I'm going to butcher last names, but it's Ken Coke, uh, Ken Kukier, Victor Meyer Schoenberger, and Francis Tavericourt. The book Framers, Make Better Decisions in the Age of Big Data. Um, so you've read this, right, Andy? Yes, I have. And and um, it's going to help us. Let's define us, you and me. It's going to fix our world. Uh, I Well, I think that anybody, anybody who's looking to solve a problem, no matter what it is, uh, although the higher level relationship stuff, I might shy away from, you know, defining frames and all that sort of stuff. But I think anyone who's looking to solve a problem or create an inventive way around something that's, that they're stuck with, this would help. Uh, I, I almost think that I would argue, and when we get into the content, I would argue that the Agile Manifesto came out of this actual activity with a bunch of software developers complaining about Waterfall, right, and Winston Royce's paper. And I also think we can figure if we were to take the time, Andy, and I remember when we both read this, we threw this back and forth in a chat message. You and I, a couple of people locked in a room for a weekend using these constructs, we can figure out what's next for Agile. I'm convinced. Convinced of it. I I, I love that idea. So when are we going? And where are we going? <laughs> uh, it's going to have to be someplace warm, uh, but not too warm. Um Bermudas and and Bermudas and, and flip flops is is my operating. I think that's the only uh, that's the only const, uh, constraint. We'll get to constraints in a minute uh, for this this mental frame. So let's so let's dig in. So I'll start off, Andy. The the concept of a frame in the book, it's an attempt to explain uh, cognition and human cognition. And the way they explain the fr- uh, the idea of a frame is the frame is how we as humans simplify our reality. So this is this is us building a mental model, a way in which we view the world. And it really, it's an attempt of our brains, because remember our brains evolutionarily were maximized to um, limit calorie burn, were maximized to boil everything down to a binary, right? Evolutionarily, everything should go to a, a, a or B. And then we pick one because tough decision-making burns a lot of calories that historically we didn't have to burn. Arguably, I probably have a lot more to burn than most people. Um <laughs> And, and, and basically trusting your brain down to the critical parts. And, and that is the key thing there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective to be able to make quick decisions that are reasonably accurate, friend or foe, uh, edible or poisonous. Right, right. And, and so those, as you pointed out, that frame gives us uh, that, I want to say shortcuts, but but some heuristic that quickly, uh, some most of the time, enables survival and eventual reproduction. Um, but as the book points out, sometimes it gets in the way. 
Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 a reduction in cognitive load, right? It's how much time do how much less time do I have to spend thinking? Um, historically, an example of um, cognitive load is Steve Jobs uh, always wore the same outfit. Albert Einstein always wore the same outfit, never made his bed famously. And he said, I, I didn't want to have to make that decision. I had other things I wanted to spend my brain on. So when we think about the concept of a frame, not only does it reduce cognitive load in familiar situations, but in, in and where we're going to go into now is the idea of novel situations. When we're presented with something that's unfamiliar, that doesn't necessarily fit a frame that we're used to using. It allows us in, in those instances where we have some some changing circumstances we're presented with a problem we don't really know we've never seen before and have no idea how to tackle it gives us options right optionality by by thinking about how we look at things um it it also constrains us right so you this idea we're going to weave in lots of stuff from jay and andy's brain so this idea of novel situations the unknown unknowns that are knowable when you come in with a preconceived frame sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not right it's the whole uh if i have a hammer everything looks like a nail argument right, right. oh well well to to call us to call out our own industry oh agile is the cure to what ails you well isn't that, doesn't by making that statement, Andy, I think that would infer that I'm coming to you with a frame and I have your problem already fit in my frame. And I've convinced you that this frame is the frame that you should look at your things or, or maybe it's not. Right. Maybe it's not. So your, your point. So let's talk about a frame, right? So one of the first aspects of a frame is causality. So when we view, when we view situations in a certain way, we, as humans, we create a cause and effect. We create a cause and effect. This is the reason why I'm viewing things this way is because of X. And where this gets difficult is especially in large scale organizations, human to human interactions, where we're creating a cause that might not actually be the true cause. And by true cause, I mean, in a scientific sense, a repeatable experiment. It might be, to, to quote Jennifer Garvey Berger, it might be a narrative that we've created. I've created that cause myself and that make that help me that validates my frame. And I'm just going to go forward because I'm convinced that person X is brilliant and person Y is an idiot. And I'm just going to go forward that way, even though I may be wrong. There, there is a wonderful website that points this out. Um, I forget who the author is, but it's spur, spurious correlations, right? <laughs> I love <laughs> the term. <laughs> and, and it, it, you know, we all know causation and, causality and correlation and all that stuff here here's an example ice cream sales and shark attacks correlate positively at the beach so you want to reduce a, a shark attacks sell less ice cream, sell less ice cream. <laughs> right so statistically uh, whatever whatever the uh the stats number is there is a high correlation between these two data sets and it, and if you use that that as the um the benchmark for applying a frame causality um sometimes you uh, head down the wrong path <laughs> you know i'm so glad i'm going to put this link in the show notes because andy i'm trying not to laugh i'm looking at the spurious correlations website and one of the correlations they make is the number of people who have drowned by falling into a pool correlates positively with the films nicholas cage appeared in year over year like so like dude you gotta stop <laughs> showing up for the movie stop reading the scripts we gotta get him, we gotta get them off the screen we gotta get them off the screen per, per capita cheese consumption 
correlates with the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their own bed sheets. I, I, but but <laughs> this is great. I'm going to link this. But to your point, right? Sometimes correlation is not exact. Correlation is can be man-made, and correlation does not necessarily equal causation. It doesn't. Just because two data points look to be in the same area doesn't necessarily mean they're in the same frame. Yeah, the world's complex, ain't it? Well, it's way, way too complex. So if we're going to build off causality, so let, let's talk about let's talk about Agile, right? So what do we think the explainability for Agile, the causality was? Well, if I understand, I'm going to replay it to you, Andy, you tell me if that sounds right. Knowing my history, knowing the story behind the manifesto, you had a bunch of software engineers, developer types get together and their causality, their complaint, their primary complaint was we cannot build large things in a manageable, predictable way because we never know everything, but we do know will change. By the time we build what we think we know, things are going to change again, that we're going to build something we don't need. So all of their, their causality for the Agile Manifesto is all the perceived inherent problems with delivery in the Winston Royce waterfall method. Does that sound, sounds about right, right? Yeah. And, 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 for those listeners of ours that aren't familiar, we have 15 wonderful stories from the original uh, folks that were in that room and uh, check it out on, on in our podcast. It's linked in a category, but you're exactly right. They, they wanted um, a lightweight, a lighter weight mm-hmm. approach to <laughs> enjoying their jobs. <laughs> right, right. Here's my, here's my, my causality of my frame that's unhappy. So I need to create a new frame. We're going to talk to that a little bit later, what it talks about, what it's called when you actually create a new frame. So with that causality, um, waterfall is too heavy, too much emphasis on documentation, not enough emphasis on delivering value. We'll say that's the cause for agile. On the next side of that cause is what, what the authors call counterfactuals. And this is, think of this as a way of, um, the easiest way I can describe it is the world of make-believe, the world of what if. What mm. if we didn't emphasize documentation? What if we didn't emphasize lines of code written? What if we did emphasize value? What if we did emphasize the ability to adapt to change? So this is taking a situation with causality you've, you've described and making mental leaps, but not only mental leaps backwards, ment- forwards, mental leaps backwards. So going in both directions. If I spin out this, um, we'll go to the ever interpretate many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, right? What yep. if I had gone left instead of gone right? What if instead of getting my iced coffee and Dunkin' Donuts, I got a hot tea? But what if those sort of things? So with those different leaps and the inherent tie is that leap creates causality. So with that counterfactual, I'm going to have a new causality. Back to the manifesto, there was a wonderful post. Uh, I'll try to dig it out, but Jeremy Akers put something in the social sphere. Um, he, he pulled from Liberating Structures, I think, um, Wicked Questions. And he looked at the manifesto. And let me describe it. He's like, it's not about individuals and interactions over process and tools. What if we considered what kind of processes and tools empower? individuals oh i just saw that this weekend i stole that that was brilliant it was what types of documentation help solutions to work right and and it goes on 
And this to me was a aha moment on here is a counterfactual because so many, so yes. many folks misinterpret it, misapply, go into hippie agile. It'll be done when it's done, man. Cause you know, mm -hmm. change. Uh, no, what kind of planning enables us to respond to change? You're, smaller you're, batch sizes, I, smaller work, bump, 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 right? And so that's a counterfactual approach, a different frame of like, let's not get rid of planning. No, let's enable planning in a better way, looking at it to help us respond to change. And, and that, that to me uh, reaffirms the brilliance of the simplicity of that manifesto. Absolutely and, right. Absolutely right. And Andy, it ties us back to, it's going to link back to our earlier start of this conversation with about how we as humans, we try to boil everything down to a binary to expend less calories, right? We yeah. look at the manifesto and we say left side, good, right side, bad. Yeah. And because of that, and because of that frame we have created for ourselves, we, to your point, hippie agile, we, we coach ourselves at the situations where we're not realistic about the, the frame that we're, we've created might not be the right frame. All right, so we got two C's, Jay. Causality, right. counterfactuals. So now we come to the third part, which actually reboots the prior, prior to, uh, depending how you approach it. And it's the eye of a, a, the idea of a constraint. So we just talked about, we create causality and then we create these counterfactuals, which is the what if scenarios. This is the, the you know children at play, imagining all possibilities. Constraints are what help us bring, it back, bring us back into reality and they create our boundaries. But- not boundaries in a hard boundary way, in some instances, they, the boundaries help us dial in our thinking. So now, then we can be creative and take risks. So for example, um, there's two types of constraints. The first constraint is a hard constraint, which is fixed, impermeable, inviolable. This is things like gravity. This is things like time, right? These are things that no matter what we want to do and how we want to do it, we are, we, are, we are stuck with it is what it is, truly. But the other part type, which is the one that we really should play with when we think about problem solving, is soft constraints. And soft constraints have three big, um, three big attributes. First of all, they're mutable. So they're open to modification. You could change them, move them around, maybe tweak them a little right or left. They, they can be applied minimally. So you can put a little bit of a constraint and then dial it up. It's a lot like how we say, okay, can, we're starting this transformation. Can we start with just doing two-week increments. And then, okay, we start turning that constraint dial up of now we're going to cut our story smaller to only be two-week increments. Then we're going to grab the no estimate stuff, no eight points, no five points, no three points. You can dial constraints up and down. And then lastly, they're consistent. So when I have multiple constraints stacked on top of one another, I can modify one without modifying the others. It doesn't create this daisy chain of complexity, which totally throws the experiment out the war. Love it. So let's go back to our agile world, right? So the causality was Winston Rice, too much documentation, too heavy, too much big upfront planning, too little customer delivery. The counterfactual, we're going to say, okay, well, what if we concentrate on value delivery, collaboration, not worrying about the contract, truly getting the value out the door? Well, what are our constraints? Well, our constraints are, we really, realistically, we should work in small chunks. We should have time boxes. We should have fast feedback loops throughout the organization. Um, all those sort of things all tied together to build the frame of Agile. But doesn't sound crazy, I don't think. Open to modification, right? Right. What's, is it 
what right. duration, uh, preference to shorter, but um, in the time of mm -hmm. a moon cycle, right? Right, right. Try to keep it within a month. Right. And okay. like we talked about, those constraints, we can tighten them. We can go to a month. We can go to eight hours. We can tighten or loosen. Um, modifying one constraint, right? The idea of consistency. Well, maybe we let people have longer iterations, but we do shorter feedback loops. Maybe we have longer feedback loops with shorter iterations. Again, not, these things are genetically tied, but they don't necessarily impact one another if you change different pieces. It creates it, it creates um, uncomfortability. I think it creates some jankiness. I think we could both agree to that. But at its base, you can, you can, <laughs> this, this number, this, this knob goes to 11, right? We could turn that one up to 11 and not necessarily have to turn all the others up to 11. Makes some sense. And, and there's a scientific approach to this, right? Minimize the number of variables you're changing you have some hope of of correlation to causality right let's say higher higher level of probability and unless we have and we i think marvin and i talked about this when we talked about uh, taylorism unless you have an infinite amount of time and budget you need to truly isolate those variables. So for example, there's an example there, for example, in the book, Taylor talks about some experiment they did with steel cutting, which took 26 years because they what? had 13, they had 13 different variables and something like 4,000 plus different permutations. And they had to literally try every knob, every needle going which way or the other to find the maximum amount of the the most the maximally efficient way to work yeah it was 26 years this experiment took it's kind of, it's kind of wild it actually gets written up in one of his later papers i downloaded it but i'm afraid to crack it because man yeah. they wrote long words in those days 26 minutes today you know there's there's so many wonderful experiments out there um where you can pump this stuff into machine and do mutations and variations and uh out outcomes the best possible answer right right well, uh, right patience uh, uh, patience and well uh, again if somebody's paying the budget andy i'd spend 26 years figuring out if agile works yes or no come to a demonstrable declarative statement we could put in stone 26 years in an unlimited budget i'm pretty sure i could find a way to make a statement now would you agree with it or not well you got that's got five more years <laughs> Right. Give me five years to digest your 26 year uh, uh, study. But so taking it, taking this when it when it comes to problem solving. So I guarantee you every listener has been confronted in in work in their personal lives with a problem. Right. Something that is um, maybe it's not even a problem. Maybe it's just a minor inconvenience. It's something you just don't like about yourself, about your 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 work, whatever. Right? It's something you're tackling. So think of it. My, my suggestion to listeners is think of it in terms of the frame. So you've got this frame. What is the cause that makes you think this way? What is the causality? And if you were to just take a moment to let your mind wander and go off into all these different possible possibilities, what would be the other opportunities you'd have? Even crazy stuff uh, or, or uh, uh, irrational. I won't use the word crazy, irrational stuff. And then from there, put constraints around the irrational statistically you're going to have a whole bunch of irrational ideas but one of them you can actually put a rational constraint around that might be the novel solution to your problem think think yourself around out of the problem i guess is the way the way i would describe it and, and throwing in the counterfactual adds another element of play to this you know one of one of uh 
a, a wonderful brainstorming experiment is everybody come up with at least three things. Run in the mill. Ooh, that's crazy. What's the worst thing? What's the Wells Fargo approach to this, right? <laughs> um, but in that way of counterfactual thinking, if I'm if I'm getting the model right, sometimes comes, oh, maybe there's something in there. Yes. Yes. Come up with the worst possible idea and then put a different constraint around it to make it pop to, to make it worthy of an experiment. Yes, because like to your point, when you let your mind wander, you may say to yourself, well, that's completely bananas. That won't work because physics. But but you know what? Now that I've said that out loud, maybe if we tweak the constraint a bit, there we have some place to move. So again, like like perfect example. Thinking your thinking around the problem that you've got, I, I think it's it's very very helpful. Um, so one of the last thing I want to talk about my framers, um, before we talk about some of the other inventive problem solving stuff we've come across is one of the the towards the end of the book, the authors talk about the idea of reframing. So I'm looking at my frame and I'm realizing that maybe this frame is no good. So what are my options? And they describe it as, and it's not limited to, but they describe it boiling it down to three separate, op- you have three opportunities here. You can go to your repertoire. Mm-hmm. So you could go back to some of the existing frames that I've had. So for example, I'm working in a agile shop and maybe agile isn't working. Okay. Well, what other frames do I have? Well, I've got the waterfall frame. I've got a truly continuous delivery frame without time boxes, a mm-hmm. flow frame, or I've got something completely new that I haven't even thought about yet, right? So that's repertoire, which also ties to the second one, which is repurpose. Let's take something we currently have existing, maybe shift it a little bit, maybe you know, hit it with a hammer when the when the when the when the joist really won't just go together. You just got to knock it with a hammer once or twice to get in there. Adjust a, a different frame to fit your current circumstances. Repurpose it, and the last one is the fun one, which is the reinvention, which is again a bunch of people at Snowbird talking about, hey, what we do right now doesn't really work. What other options do we have? Go go back to the well, grab something. Maybe you grab something and you got to jigger it, kind of slide it off kilter a little bit, knock it into focus. Or maybe you just create something completely new altogether. I love it. There was uh, an interesting part of the book where the author said there was only one other creature on the planet that's known to use frames, crows. And, and they they pulled out the old Aesop's fables, you know, the crow in the pitcher and his beak's not long enough to reach the water and he's thirsty. Mm-hmm. And and he, he can't, well, he doesn't have the concept of a straw, but he does. And crows in real life have been seen to do this, pick up pebbles, drop them into the pitcher to raise the water level to the point where they can get a drink. It's like, amazing, right? But, but Change I'm the frame. Curious. I would love to see more studies because I bet you there are other creatures on this planet that use this. Um, dolphins, elephants, a few of the great apes have a similar ability as humans to recognize self in a mirror. And I wonder if there's something about the, the brain structures that allow us to take advantage of reframing. I don't know that it's only a, a human advantage, but maybe we can learn from some of our uh, I think you're right I think you're right I so slightly off topic I just picked up a book I started by a guy by the name of Peter Godfrey Smith 
And the title is Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins of Consciousness. And it talks about how octopi, squids, cuttlefish, they are the closest thing to intelligent aliens we will find on this planet. Uh, it's shared, um, if we go back in evolution, our shared ancestor is something like 600 million years ago. That's that we, that, So the, the metaphor he makes is talking to an octopus is like talking to a completely different trans, branch of the evolutionary tree, like the other side of the family tree, literally. And But they, to your point, they creatively problem solve. You ever watch an octopus that's stuck in a boat? Yeah. That one story, the octopus that climbed, that compressed itself to climb through the six inch drain pipe to get out of the boat, like that creative problem solving, right? They, they maybe, maybe they're not constrained by a frame at all. And that's how they are so successful at being escape artists because they don't, they don't mind. Oh, well, I can't do that because X. Well, what if we took that away from us? I mean, you have a bunch of people leaving off buildings convinced they could fly. It might not be the best thing in the world. But what if we took that out of our own minds, Andy? Maybe it's almost like um, it's almost like a governor when you rent the U-Haul truck and it won't let you go above 75. Not that I would know. Um, what if we took the governor off our own minds? What happens? Which is basically what we're talking about. Yeah, the octopus retro. I love it. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, but, it's so fun talking with you. <laughs> you just pull, pull stuff out of the attic and put it together on the table it's all just up there it's all rattling around with dust on it so let's talk about so let's talk about um not the father of creative problem solving but a guy who definitely contributes to this type of thinking and i think we all know the name of claude shannon so claude shannon mathematician engineer scientist uh he's princeton he i think he was at princeton the same time as einstein and godel kurt godel um he's the father of information theory so the reason we're doing this interview right now over a computer, cell phones, all this technology, it's it's from him um, with signals and noise and information and information loss. He gave a speech once called Creative Thinking, um, which is basically Problem Solving 101. And he came up with a couple of concepts that I think are completely applicable when we think about the idea of a frame. So his first concept is simplify, right? So yeah. his statement is every single problem you encounter is full of extraneous data. So his, his, his exact words were, take everything away from the problem that doesn't make it unique or interesting. So he's basically saying, get rid of the noise. Now that's hard because we bring a frame of reference where we're trying our best to have some causality so we can make sense of it. Wow, that's a challenge. Right, right. But, and, and his argument is, if you strip away all the things that, that, uh, make it mundane. If you strip away everything, well, you don't have a problem. The solution's already there. You just need to put it together. And I, I and it's kind of like the idea we talk about how cutting scope, cutting scope, cutting scope. And um, there's this there's this famous interview that Elon Musk did standing outside the rocket uh, SpaceX with the beeping in the background, which was kind of humorous. And he talks about his hints for being successful product uh, for being successful in product delivery. And he said one of the things is. Um, Nothing is sadder than optimizing something that should not exist. You should always be looking to cut more scope than you think is, is, is too much. If you're thinking it's too much, it's probably the right amount. And his counterfactual to that is if you're not trying to add 10% back in, you're not cutting enough. So those two things tie together, right? Get down and eliminate the simplify, eliminate the stuff that's noise. On the back of simplify, Claude Shannon said the next step we should do is compare and contrast our problem with answers to other problems that are kind of similar. So if you figure out we have a problem that of X, 
and there's a problem over here with Y that has a solution. What, what do these problems have in common? What do these answers have in common? So then if you realize that you can solve Y with A, and we have problem X, and we've got solution B, that jump between A and B probably isn't as big. And his rationale is it's much easier to make two small jumps than one large jump when it comes to thinking. I love it. What was the name of the book? Uh, A Mind at Play. Yeah, so there's a big part in Framers about play and how children up to a certain age are natural framers and reframers. Uh, and um, at some point, I don't know what at age, either it, it grows out, it gets educated out, it gets socialized out. Um, so that idea of returning to play is a beautiful one. Now you got me thinking, some of these people who come up with some of these life-changing products, right? These life-changing inventions or ideas, maybe they're the lucky ones who did not have that did not have that, I don't want to say beaten out of them, but did not have that aspect of their brain nullified to the point where it, it no longer is effective. The people who come up with these really novel solutions, um, maybe they're kind of lucky. Yeah, the Einsteins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one Another book we should probably dive into, Andy. Have you read Range by David Epstein? No. Uh, how how generals will, generalists will succeed in a world of specialists? And I say this to everyone who's listening, it changed my life. It literally changed my life and how I look at certain things. Um, <laughs> confession time, I took all my agile books that are unread that I haven't read yet. I threw them in a box. I haven't touched them since. That book made me totally look differently about how I approach things. Put them in a little library up the street. There's a, why we're on book recommendations. If, if uh, you're looking for something fun and light to read at the beach, a uh, couple of decades old, but Einstein's Dreams. Hmm. Really wonderful one, because um, it's written from the point of view of a young Einstein contemplating different frames around huh. uh, relativity. And, and some of them don't have the constraints of physics. And so it's a, it's a fascinating discussion. Uh, let, me, let me see if I can recall one, one particular story. They're all short stories. Ah, um, the idea that as we travel closer to the speed of, uh, of light, time dilation happens and it mm -hmm. slows down, right? There, there's the, the twin, I don't know if it's the twin paradox, but the twins, right? One goes and flies quick, comes back younger than their sibling. And so in this dream of Einstein, he's like, well, what if that's exaggerated? What would the world look like? And the, and the story is people just build really tall buildings because the further that they are away from the center of the earth the faster they <laughs> rotate the slower time goes for them like, ooh, that's that's a good beach read I yeah used... oh i added that i added that to my cart um it's like the it's like the movie interstellar where they explain all this stuff in how the closer you get to a black hole time dilation starts and oh while we're on the one planet for 10 minutes it's seven years like it's really really cool stuff i i love that thanks great i love those light beach reads it really makes you think i just picked up um who got einstein's office 
<laughs> which is the story of after he after he passed in Princeton, who actually got his office at the school, right? Because remember him, Kurt Gottel, um, Claude Shannon, all these people were coming in and out of those buildings. Really, really fascinating. Um, but we digress. But we digress. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, everybody's going to come up with tons of stuff to read. So back to Mr. Shannon. We talked about his simplify, his compare and contrast. His next thing, um, which really ties to the idea of frames intricately, is the idea of restating the problem. And his, his suggestion is change the words you use or the viewpoint you have of the question itself. So if I restate my problem in a different way, in a different way, in a different way, he says that gets you out of what his quote was, the ruts of mental thinking. If you're consistently changing how you restate it, you could trigger something. And the, and the, the intended but unintended consequence of this, Claude Shannon says, is you remove any potential bias you may or may not know you have, which constrains your thinking, right? What, what is the causality? What is the, the thing that I know to be true? When I keep changing the words, not that I'm convincing myself, but I'm just creating different angles to view the problem. Yeah, words. And well, meaning. I, I, when, yeah. Particularly if you're in dialogue, exploring what you mean, what is your frame of reference for that set of words? And, and how does it compare and contrast with mine? Mm, mm, great, it, great conversation. Uh, so the last couple we'll, we'll cook through to come of these because they're easy decompose. So break the problem in smaller pieces. We aren't aware of that. Yep. Um, the other one, this is interesting. The idea of inversion. Mm -hmm. So imagine your prop, your conclusion is there. Think about what the causality would be. So if the answer, the fake answer is X, what would need to be true for this to work? Oh, well, I would need to have this. I would need to have this. Wait a minute. I already have those three things. So to your point about children, and minds at play, if you imagine this, this, what a novel solution to already be there, and then you say, okay, well, for this to be successful, this, 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 and this need to be true. But wait, this, 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 and this are already true. Well, I just solved my problem. Or if four out of five are true, now you know which one to work on. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Process of elimination, simplify it, right? <clears throat> and then his last, uh, his last thing with creative problem solving, which I, I thought tied to some of Jeffrey West's work in that book, Scale. Uh, once you've found your solution, see how far you can push it. See how far it will stretch, how big it will scale, how large it will can grow. And his quote was, if you can prove for an isolated result, how much bigger can you prove? So this is, this is basically, if you think about how Einstein worked, right? He would solve for a local experiment and then <clears throat> make it bigger, 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 bigger. And we end up with the general theory of relativity because it's applicable at the quantum level all the way upwards. So yeah. that's where, I mean, and, he, and then he, the example he actually uses in the speech is he talks about the idea of math theorems. So postulates, math problems. These are, he said, these are typically solved <clears throat> and then they're generalized or abstracted up to the largest level course screen possible. So see how, so when we talk about stretching it, solve your problem and see how big you can go. You may end up with a, with a, um, a generally recognizable natural law that you didn't even know existed. Right. <clears throat> Which is really kind of cool to think about like, oh my God, I just solved for, there's tons of examples. I forget the, there was a book, um, another book. Uh, I'll give you this one, Andy. Um, this is another beach blanket read because it's a bunch of short stories. Um, when, when when Einstein 
when Einstein walked with Gotham, so Kurt Gottel, the incompleteness theorem, um, excursions to the edge of thought. So the author is Jim Holt, and it's a bunch of short stories. And it's stuff in quantum physics. It's stuff in um, in all these different postulates. It's, it's, it's theory of mind. It's consciousness. It's all these sort of things. But it's a bunch of short stories where uh, I think the, the one article I read said, this will make you the most interesting person to talk to at a cocktail party. Because <laughs> it's like five to six pages of all these different things. There was one... There was one, I wish I could, it was called, I think it was called a conjecture, the four color conjecture, I think it was, where on any map, if you take a piece and you surround it with a different color on each side, there is no map that you can do that uniquely in a context and not have the colors, two of the same color touch each other. Huh, Cartesian or Mercator map? Uh, oh, now we're getting specific. I'd have to look it up because I don't want to misquote myself. But <laughs> but those those sort of interesting things, right? The interesting things. Um, good good blanket reading. But back to back to framers and problem solving. Oh yeah, so, that's what we were talking about. <laughs> uh, early morning conversation. I, I was coffee. thinking cocktail parties and beaches and long walks <laughs> and sunset. Do you have a cocktail party on a beach? Yeah, you could. It would change the dress code somewhat. Yeah. But I think it's possible. Uh, but back to um, Ken Kukier and, and problem solving, right? Um, there, there are, for those that haven't read the book, there are tons of metaphor in here that, I mean, Andy and I could literally spend another two hours just talking about some of the metaphors he uses children at play. And he does talk about elephants at one point. And he talks about, um, he actually talks about applying these types of thinking to culture cultural change, politics, the idea of monocultures, how do you combat a monoculture, um, uh, how to have multiple frames all working in, con in concert at the same time. There is a lot of stuff about, um, uh, there was some stuff around DNA, there was stuff about Singapore and governments, a lot of bigger cultural type stuff. Um, it really, really was a really fascinating read about how to think about some of the bigger problems that we have and then how to change how to make change right what it comes down to is how to make uh, corporate change is what we all that's the you know that's the monster we're always you know railing against maybe it's even bigger jay let's get out of corporate let's just talk about you know some small civilization the planet <laughs> so so help me help me remember so towards the end of the book he talks about the challenges um, that have happened in the last hundred years, um, where where frames got really narrow for some, um, resulted in a, a couple of world wars. It mm -hmm. it results in uh, polarized thinking, and in these days, it's it's really coming to a head. Yep the the frames people use to view their reality. How do how do we stimulate conversation with others that have a dramatically different frame around the picture that they're looking at than we do. That's a very interesting point because I just flipped back through the book and the example he uses is terrorism. So global terrorism. And he talks about how um, terrorists are neither irrational nor illogical. They are very meticulous framers. They have created a frame that is completely rational to them and it just totally makes sense and and he he says um we need to be conscious of when we try to be overly rigid with the frame application we need to consciously challenge ourselves um 
being uh, vigilance is his big thing, uh, along with pluralism and the idea of we need we need to keep multiple frames in the zeitgeist, keep them in the conversation. Waterfall and Agile, right? Neither one's going away. We need to keep them in the conversation. And that's probably the best way we can prevent ourselves from thinking into a rut to steal from Claude Shannon. Yeah. I, uh, there was a, you know, you hear you're talking about how do we change culture and civilization? Uh, I was actually just putting together a blog post. It'll be a chapter in the book when the book eventually comes out in 2032 um, around the idea of an egregore. A what? So, yeah, right now, bear with me. So an egregore, E-G-R-E-G-O-R-E. So what an egregore is, it comes from like mysticism and esoterica. It's a near physical manifestation of a particular group. So when we think about, Andy, when we think about what we do as change agents, air quotes for those on the audio, in corporate culture, what we're fighting is an egregore. It is an accumulation of the actions, the thoughts, the norms, um, the behaviors of a particular group of people. And the thought with an egregore is it can actually grow so big that it would actually live on past the people itself. So past the people that created it and helped feed it, that mindset goes out and it and it it propagates forever. I let I mean Taylorism. Taylorism, everybody bought into it. And it's become this giant thing, scientific management. This is how thou, thou shall work. And even if nobody believes it anymore, it's still out there. It's still so. out there. It's still actually being applied. Some of it well and some of it poorly. Yep. Yep. But it, it's taken it. on a mind of its own, right? It, it is its own thing. So my argument in this blog post was we need to, how do we compete against a an egregore that has been created in a corporate culture? Well, we need to create our own egregore. We need to create a, a counterfactual egregore, right? A competing narrative. And we need to care and feed that and contribute to its actions and contributes to its norms and find a way that it almost becomes a gravity well that pulls from the other side. And these two egregores can live in, in, in continuity together. They don't have to necessarily go to war with each other. But ideally, and we talk about you know successful organizational change, the new one kind of strangles off strangle patterns the old one strangler patterns the old one to a point where everybody wants to move to the new one and the old one just kind of dies by its wayside interesting two giant black holes right which one do we go to which one do we go to obviously the one that makes us look thinner if i'm being honest right the one that makes us look thinner is the one you go to yeah, it's, it's an argument so andy um we we've kind of got all over the place i think this was a good conversation so um if you had to suggest to our listeners the the one one of the one of the the one reason you'd say look you'd really want to pick up this book because what would your answer be uh the cover solves the nine dot problem (laughs) (laughs) oh you don't even have to pick up the book you can just go on amazon um the, the real reason is for me it brings me back to a playful way of solving problems. So many of us have diverged from that innocent child on the beach um, that that didn't have the constraints uh, that we now have as an adult. So it may, if it brings you back to uh, that beauty of being on the beach, building sandcastles, um, go for it. Love it. Love it. And with that, 
We're going to wrap this one up. We want to, Andy and I want to thank all of you for listening, tuning in again. Andy, I want to thank you for taking time this morning in the run-up to your vacation to hang out and chat with me. It was a good, great way to, to get the brain warmed up for, I'm sure, whatever whatever bullshit counterfactuals we're going to have to deal with later in the day. So I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening. Uh, find us on Patreon. Support our uh, Krebs and Machine Man Records who does our outro music. And we'll see you on the Discord chat. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. Awesome.